the church belongs to God. Um, it is purchased by Christ, of course. Uh, I guess I'm just speaking here on an earthly level. It's his church, and he delegates the responsibility for his church, first to the, uh, the congregation and then more narrowly to the elders within a church. So, yeah, yeah, it is Christ's church for sure. Uh, the the emergent, uh, immersion um, issue is, uh, is a much debated issue today. Um, a lot of Baptists would argue that the word um, baptizo specifically means immersion. Uh, there isn't really any strong case towards that. Um, but what, the way we see it as um, modeled in the New Testament, it seems like immersion is the the closest pattern that the early church practiced. And there's something significant about immersion as well when you're going um, totally under the water and you're coming out as it represents what the gospel is. So you look at a passage like Acts 6, and it says, do, do you not remember that you have been buried with Christ in his death and raised with him to newness of life? Um, sprinkling just doesn't really uh, portray that true reality of your union with Jesus Christ. And then you look at uh, another passage. Um, what's the one that I'm thinking about? With uh, passing through the waters of judgment, First um, Peter, First Peter something. chapter three or something like that, yeah. uh, where he talks about baptism corresponding to what happened when Noah safely passed through the waters of God's judgment. Um, you know that that really is pictured through immersion as well. So uh, we, when we baptize people, we um, we practice immersion. Um, if there are individuals who come from different places who have been baptized by a different mode of baptism, um, really, baptism is more closely tied to your profession of faith than it is the way that you were baptized. Uh, So what really matters is, did you believe in the gospel? Um, Was that a true gospel confession? And was that baptism a uh, physical or public display of your union with Jesus Christ. Those are the things that are, that matter. And as so far as we're going to do new baptisms, we're going to practice immersion because we think that's the best model example um, in the New Testament. But if you are uh, sprinkled, again, those are going to be individual conversations. And what matters most is that it's tied together with the true gospel confession. Yeah, in our neck of the woods, when we're when people are asking, should I be rebaptized? What they tend to mean is they were baptized as an infant, so before they did or even could profess faith. So in that case, it's very clear to us, yes, you should be baptized, not even re-baptized. We wouldn't say that was a true baptism according to our understanding of baptism. You should be baptized. Now you profess faith. First step of obedience is to be baptized. But if we come across someone and people, and we have, who made a profession of faith and then were baptized by a different mode, that's where we would probably rely somewhat on conscience. Um, so if that person was saying, no, I really want to be immersed now. I was, I was sprinkled, but I understand now baptism really is immersion and I want to be immersed. I think we would, generally. If that person was saying, I professed faith and was baptized and it was through sprinkling or through pouring or something, and that was my baptism and that was genuine and that was real and I can't in good conscience be baptized again, I think we would cede to conscience there, rather than impose something on their conscience or tell them they cannot be part of this church. Um, but again, as Steve said, I think a lot of those are individual conversations and um, often ones that can happen over time, not be hurried. 
Um, so one of the elements of a service we try to incorporate, I'd say most weeks, um, is a, a confession and an assurance of pardon, which are traditional elements of Reformed worship. So in some way there would be a, a corporate together congregational confession of sin. That may be a leader leading the congregation in that, or it may be all of us reading something together. It could be even through singing a song that specifically confesses sin. So we want to have that corporate confession, but the real joy of it is the assurance of pardon, which is somebody, uh, again, all of us reading or maybe an elder, just telling people, if you did genuinely forgive your sins, you are forgiven. And it's not, it's not me exercising some power over the congregation. I'm just telling them what's true according to the gospel, which is if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so we find that through the week, people have, you know, it's been a week since people have gathered to worship and people have sinned and people often come into church feeling rotten and just feeling the weight of their, um, just their sinfulness. It's such a joy to be able to say, we are all sinners, and so we are going to confess our sins together. The people you look up to, the elders, we're sinners. The brand new Christian sinners, we're confessing our sin together. And we're going to receive, again, God's forgiveness for our sins. So I find that one of the most moving, precious parts of the service. And then you can go to a song of thanksgiving, right? What do you want to do after you've been assured that you are forgiven, other than sing and rejoice together? Um, so we change the way we do that. We rarely do it the exact same way twice. Um, and in order some of the rules, we, we don't want to confess sins. that We don't want to be too specific in confessing sins because we don't want people to say they've committed a sin they actually haven't. Um, so we try and be a little bit broad in our confessions of sin, <clears throat> broad biblical categories of sin. Um, but I find it a very moving element of our worship service. Yeah, so one of the things we do is we'll often try to pick a confession that is thematically tied to the main theme of the text that we're preaching on a Sunday. So, for instance, our senior pastor, he recently preached on uh, James chapter 3 and about bridling the tongue and about your tongue being a, a world of evil. Um, so the confession, the corporate confession that we had on that Sunday was specifically tied to that theme, Lord, forgive us for every careless word that we've spoken. And I think one of the things that it, it does, again, it does many things, but um, it gives two things. It gives people a voice of confessing sin to God when they themselves don't really know how to confess. I know in my own experience, I've um, just been so sorrowful over my sin that um, there, there are moments where I just feel like I can't even go to God because I feel so guilty. And that time is uh, a time for us to uh, be a voice on behalf of the congregation to confess our corporate sins to the Lord. I think the other thing that it does, too, is um, we as pastors and service leaders can use that as a teaching moment to, to teach our people how, how to actually confess sin. Be very real about your sin. Call it what it is. Use biblical language. Um, if you're speaking, if you're gossiping, like we can use uh, that kind of language and show people how to confess sin to the Lord. I would say if there's four people who are equally equipped to be elders, then all four can be elders. So I don't, I, I wouldn't want to be in a position where we only choose one when there's many who are qualified. So I would be glad to have as many as the Lord provides. And it's one of the prayers we have often is, Lord, provide elders for our church. And we, we really believe that right now all the men who are qualified to be elder are either elders or on 
in, in the way into the eldership through the evaluation process. Um, so there are things that, there are things to vote on. I just want to separate that from democracy, right? So there, there can be a time where we have to pass a budget, and according to CRA rules, you have to have a certain number of um, people present, and a certain number of them have to vote affirmative or something like that. So that's a, a voting process. It's still, I still wouldn't say it's democratic in that sense. We still want to impose what we understand from Canadian or American politics into the church. Um, but there is a time, there, Paul talks about the judgment of the majority, right? So there seems to be uh, places in Scripture, and I think we'll probably talk about that tomorrow some, uh, there seems to be places where it's like we are getting the consensus of the people and just trusting that um, the Lord equips us with wisdom, and if the majority of people believe this, and that's the way we'll go forward. Yeah, so in the Catholic system, that's seen as an authority that was given specifically to Peter. They wouldn't relate Matthew 18 necessarily in the same way we would to Matthew 16. They'd say that's an authority given specifically to Peter as the first pope, and then all the papal successors gain that authority as Peter's successors, right? Um, so they would ground a certain authority in the pope or, or in the papacy. So I think um, this model doesn't work in every, not every church implements this model properly. Not every church sees the congregation as having the authority I believe Jesus gives to them. Um, so hopefully in a congregation that's understanding the authority that's been delegated to us by Jesus Christ, uh, people are acting to preserve the gospel and part of the way you preserve the gospel is by ensuring you've got a regenerate membership, right? By making sure the people in your church love the Lord. They're truly saved. They're now members of this church. And again, we're going to talk about meaningful membership tomorrow, which indicates um, believers in membership. But hopefully if you have believers in membership together, they're equally committed to protecting the gospel. Um, and you do have to have a common core of beliefs, right? We, we would say that um, there are believers that we would affirm as being Christians, but we couldn't fellowship with them in a local church because our beliefs are just too different. And there do come times when people of like interest may have to separate from a church and form their own because they've come to new beliefs that now make it incompatible. We, in our church, we tried to merge with a church in our area, and um, we got quite far into the conversations. This was a church that was older and really getting close to shutting down. Our church was younger and needing uh, room to expand, needing a building and all that. And it seemed like we could do something really good here and join together. Um, but in the end, there was a theological belief they held to. It was a, their, their view of the end times. And they just said, we could not be in fellowship with you because of our differing views on that. And we just had to respect that, that they're believers. They love the Lord. They're serving the Lord, have been for a long time. We're believers, we love the Lord, but we just can't be in local church fellowship. So there do come sad times where you just have to um, separate over some of, these, some of these beliefs that you come to convictions on certain matters. So many things can become a matter of preference, homeschool, public school, Christian school. I mean, those kind of stuff that, that we deal with in the life of our church. Um, the very first thing is you want to be teaching God's Word, and God's Word has a lot to say about preferences. And you think about passages like Romans 14 and uh, some of the passages or chapters in 1 Corinthians that talk about the weaker brother. Uh, so teaching has to be first. Um, and I think secondly, uh, one of the ways that, you know, if, if, if the 
the, the culture in the church is one of people um, putting their preferences first, um, then I think you can model that in your own life. Uh, there are a number of times where Paul talks about imitate me as I follow Christ. And so I think as pastors, I think as members, uh, you can start modeling that in your own life when you're in a situation and it becomes a matter of preference to die to your own preference to count your brother or your sister more significant. And I know that you guys have been reading Deliberate Church. Uh, one of the things that I love about that book, um, the, big, the biggest takeaway for me is when Dever said, being patient in ministry isn't for like four, five, six years. Sometimes it's 20, 30, 40 years. And I think you can have patience with these things. It's going to take a long time to, uh, for, for people to change. And you can be patient about those things and seek to teach over time, seek to model, uh, seek to pray, and the Lord will bear, uh, bear fruit through that in his time. Yeah, I think one helpful thing we've tried to do is really identify what are simply matters of preference. A lot of our musical choices are prudence or preference, um, not clear revelation. We must sing, we must sing what's true. But beyond that, we're into a lot of matters of preference, you know, even how we play the songs, what kind of tempo are we using, or what melody are we singing with the songs. There's all sorts of things that are matters of preference. So simply identifying them is helpful because we've got to be really willing to bend on matters of preference. So our church is very multicultural, multi-ethnic. We've got people from all around the world, different backgrounds, immigrating to Canada, settling in Toronto, joining our church. There's a lot of issues where we realize we just do it in a really middle-class white guy way because that's just the way we do it and that's the way we're comfortable with. But we can let go of some of those preferences and do it in a way that's more meaningful to other people. And that's, that's fine. That's good. A lot of the freedom we have in Christ is the freedom to deny ourselves, right? To say, that's just a matter of preference. I don't need my preferences. I'm glad to cede that to you. I'm glad for you to have your preference instead of me. I can truly rejoice in that. This isn't a hill to die on. I'm gladly giving up, giving up that for you. Um, so I think just identifying them and making, making it clear that not everything is a hill to die on. Not everything is a matter of absolute right and wrong, but really very often we're operating in that realm of just, this is what I prefer. 